Hello, welcome to Pod Songs, where we interview inspirational people in service to others as inspiration for a new song. business and economics writer for the New York Times about his book, The Economist's Hour. All right. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Thanks very much for agreeing to chat to me. It's, uh, it's an unusual invitation. It intrigued me. Oh, thank you. Well, it's my job now in the next hour to to download your your best ideas and condense them into a three minute song afterwards. <laughs> so I need you to make me look good. I kind of take credit for all your good ideas. Likewise, I need you to make me look making good. Making them rhyme. So the more pithy comments, the uh, more, you know, your book's been great. And um, so and I listen to you many shows and it's very interesting because I'm, I'm also kind of the broader picture. I had, I had Joel Baker, Bakanon, who wrote uh, the, the corporation and the new corporation and produced the documentaries. I don't know if you've seen any of those. I, I know his work. I haven't, I haven't no, actually quite... seen the documentaries. Yeah. Okay. So I was quite interested because it really, because after having many guests on the show, you kind of see these, these concurrent problems, what seems to be disparate problems, but the common thread or the common hands behind the scene, the corporations. And so I wrote the song. I thought it was the problem was the the law, you know, the lawyers. But from what I understand with your work, there could be another culprit behind the scenes. And maybe we, so maybe we could go into. Yeah. I mean, the idea of, of the book is basically that we're living in an era where economists have played a, a dominating role in shaping public policy that they really developed a language for thinking about public policy programs that has proved enormously influential and, and has really reshaped the way that we make decisions as a society, both the types of information that we consider and, and the ways that we evaluate choices, putting a huge emphasis on, on things that can be quantified and measured, trying to quantify things that, that people generally don't think of as having monetary value, like the value of human life, for example. And, and that this language and, and methodology, you know, has, has really taken hold of, of government in ways that are enormously consequential. So, you know, economists have really advocated the idea that the goal of government should be to increase overall economic growth and that questions of distribution should be secondary. So the size of the pie is more important than the size of the pieces. And this has been enormously influential. Governments have really set aside a focus on ensuring a broad distribution of prosperity in favor of really focusing on maximizing overall prosperity, uh, sort of a rising tide lifts all boats theory of governance. And mm. that is a key reason for the enormous inequalities of modern life. We've stopped trying to limit those inequalities, and uh, unsurprisingly, they've I exploded in their magnitude. So, you know, people 
Here in the United States, it was very common in the 1950s and 1960s for foreign visitors to remark on the egalitarian quality of life in the United States, that the bosses and the workers went to the same churches, that their children were educated in the same schools, that they drove similar cars, ate similar kinds of food, vacationed in similar places. There are obviously some important caveats to all. America back then was a racially divided society. Many minorities didn't have access to this breadth of opportunity. But in important respects, it really was a more egalitarian society. And if you fast forward to the present, America is a society with sharp divisions along class lines, right? It's no longer the case that the rich and poor congregate in the same places or worship in the same places or vacation in the same places or even eat the same f types of food or, you know, we, we really have class lines in an increasingly important and I think uncomfortable sense. And the final argument that I make in my book, and you should cut me off at any point because I'm going on at length, but... <laughs> is that this is bad for democracy, that that it's increasingly difficult to talk about we the people when we have less and less in common. And that to identify mm -hmm. policies that serve the common interest is really hard when the common interest is so divergent, when what's good for the rich and what's good for the poor is increasingly different. And so our democracy is under strain because of economic inequality. And, and that that's really an important issue that we need to confront. Yeah, I think because it's getting in more and more this concentration of, 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 of wealth and with the billionaires and the multi-billionaires and people like Jeff Bezos, for example, is now at the top of the pie. But do you think, does he not realize that, you know, if, 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 all, if, he, if the minimum wage was, was raised, and everyone earned more, they would all spend more with him and he would, his money, he would get richer as well. Does he not see that? I think, you know, I, I don't want to speak about Jeff Bezos in particular. I'm not inside his head. But I think in general, you know, one of the things that economists provided was sort of a, a gospel of wealth accumulation. They made it seem like the rich were doing everyone a favor by being as greedy as possible. The, the ideology of greed is good. The idea that, you know, if you just mm. sought to maximize your profits, that the sole responsibility of a corporation like Amazon is to maximize its profits, to make as much money as possible, that the market will ensure that, that people are paid fairly. And if they're not paid very much, it's because they're not worth very much. And that what will be best for society in the aggregate is for Jeff Bezos to be as rich as possible. This is a very comforting mm. set of ideas if you're Jeff Bezos. Economists basically licensed the wealthy to think of themselves as a meritocracy that was not only deserving of what it received, but that was benefiting society by being as greedy as possible. Yeah, there's a good quote in your book that that economic policy is as it seems to resemble exactly what makes the rich people rich. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, this has always been true throughout history, right? Like the people who are welcomed mm -hmm. in court are the people who tell the king how great. So, we, so we come back again to the to the corporations, and that it seems to be a systems failure. So that that by the system functioning correctly, we're going to get uh, global warming, income inequality, racial inequality, all these problems because 
but that's that's the system functioning correctly according to economists yeah or maybe a, a slightly different way to put it is that uh the, those problems, I think, pre-exist the rise of economics and, and would exist independent of economics. But economics has constrained our ability to deal with those issues. Economics is a language that is ill-equipped to confront those kinds of challenges, is largely indifferent to those kinds of challenges, ill-equipped to confront them, and that has exacerbated them in our society. So, you know, racial inequality obviously is, is wired into the DNA of the United States it, it amounts to basically a founding mm -hmm. principle of this country. But it, you can't resolve it if you treat it as irrelevant. You, you, you resolve mm -hmm. racial inequality by confronting it. And, and what mm -hmm. economics has done instead is to say, you know, no, we're just going to sort of take people as they are. We're going to pretend that everybody's competing on this flat level playing field. We're going to ignore the fact that some people, you know, arrive uh, in the workforce having you know been the products of generations of systematic racism that has limited the economic opportunities of their forebears limited their education their access to high quality education to goods and services and we're going to treat them as if you know they get to compete on even terms with people who have benefited from those inequalities and and the outcome is inevitable and the outcome is that racial inequalities mm -hmm. are exacerbated even though nobody's being explicitly racist or even in, in, in a situation in which nobody is being explicitly racist, the structural weight of history means that, that minorities will be disadvantaged and that those disadvantages will increase with time. And so economics just leaves us poorly equipped to confront those problems. So, so okay, we, we let economists off the hook for that particular one. But that was probably the biggest surprise from your book is because, you know, money's been around for for a long time Eco econom economics yeah the economy has been is pretty well established but i didn't realize that economists themselves kind of late to, laid onto the scene that was a big surprise yeah it's really interesting i i mean i start my book with an anecdote about a guy who worked at the federal reserve bank of new york in the 1950s he was an economist he was employed basically back then the term computer literally meant a person who computes a person who does the math basically and he was a, he was a, his job was to solve problems uh, for the people who actually ran the place. He did the work that, that you would now get an Excel spreadsheet to do. And he was an economist by training, and he was convinced that there was no place for economists at the Federal Reserve. There was no opportunity to build a career there. And at the time, he was right. The, the leadership of the Federal Reserve did not include any economists. It was not who, who in... Was it? It was it was bankers, it was lawyers, it was there was an Iowa hog farmer. It was meant to be sort of people who represented the American economy, and mm -hmm. and they ran that institution, and and the guy who ran it at the time said that he kept a couple of economists in the basement because they asked good questions <laughs> but they didn't know their own limitations, which is an amazing quote. The good old days. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that guy, whose name was Paul Volcker, by the 1970s, he was running the Federal Reserve. And, and economists in general were running the Federal Reserve and were increasingly influential across a wide range of government agencies and, and government policy. And that transformation really happens over the second half of the 20th century. So, you know, people look at the world as they know it and they think it's always been that way. But 
the reality is mm-hmm. that that the influence of economists is largely a, a post-war phenomenon in the Western world. It it begins to grow during and after the Second World War. As government gets more complicated, as data about statistics in its original sense means data about the state, information about the state. Uh, and as governments accumulate statistics, they have more information and uh, they have the ability to to make more complicated decisions. Government gets bigger in its ambitions and economists essentially emerge as a class of technocrats who are you know, uniquely equipped to manage that complexity and, and to run and to make decisions about public policy. The computers take over. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because I thought John Maynard Keynes, I mean, that's what, because I did, I did A-level economics, which in, in, in England is something you do. It's kind of your, high, your late high school. So yeah, and I, it was all Keynesian monetarism. And so would it, without Milton Friedman, was he really the, he, he was the charismatic person who came in and said, who made economics cool? Well, Keynes made economics cool, but the thing about Keynes that often gets missed in the retelling is, you know, while he was articulating his great ideas in the 1930s, people didn't listen to him, or specifically policymakers didn't listen to him. The United States didn't really embrace Keynesian policies until it was forced to do so by World War II. So what ends the, the depression in the United States is the war. And that's when the United States really embarks on the kind of broad public spending program that Keynes at that point had been advocating basically for a decade. And in the aftermath of World War II, you know, economists look back on that and they say, well, that was a great idea. And it was the idea advocated by Keynes. And, and so we should embrace that. And that 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 does have an influence that does begin to, to turn the tide. There's no doubt that Keynes is sort of the the is an enormously important figure in the rise of economics. But as you suggest, uh, almost immediately you get an opposing school, and Milton Friedman is probably the most important figure in that opposing school of thought that argues uh, for limitations on the role of government in the economy. And, and it's that opposing school that really becomes broadly influential in the 1970s and the 1980s, and in many ways right up to the and their influence, Keynes's influence was really tightly concentrated. It was really, he, he, it's like he invented one drug, a super drug, a kind of medicine that treated recessions. And it was enormously successful. And the idea was, if you have a recession, the government should respond by spending a lot of money. And that was a good idea. And it was an mm. important idea. What Friedman and his allies pioneered was sort of a whole new kind of medicine, uh, a whole new approach to a whole range of public policy problems that that what the government should do was get out of the way and allow markets to allocate resources. And, you know, it's it's this idea was broadly influential. So the United States ends military conscription because of this. The United States mm. stops regulating the airline industry because of this idea. The United States ends the system known as Bretton Woods, which regulated exchange rates among currencies because of this idea. So, you know, it, it's it's no longer just like the, the gold standard. Drug. Yeah, they left the gold standard. Right, they left the gold standard. That's a better way of saying Bretton Woods. It's no longer just a wonder drug. It's now a, a, a whole new approach to medicine that that extends across all different kinds of public policy. Because that isn't, surely isn't somewhere in the middle because I remember, you know, the arguments before, but because if you give $100 to a 
to a rich man. You know, he does. It goes straight into his bank account. He doesn't. It doesn't boost the economy in any way. But if you give the, if you give a a bonus to the to the poorer people, the bottom is in, in in any way a tax cut or a or a minimum wage or something like that. Then that makes a huge effect on the economy. So, you know, why are they still doing these these? You know, why does it seem that I know more with my A level economics than all these policy advisors by by boosting the rich? You don't. You're not even helping the rich. You're just you're not creating any growth, even if you wanted growth, which I don't think. I don't say. I'm not saying growth is a good thing. That's something we can get into. But are they are people coming around to that idea, or is it is it just because the the rich people are running the show? So it's a great question. I, I really like that framing, and I want to answer it in in two different ways. Uh, the first is that economic is both the success of economics is a function, as we said a moment ago, of of the availability of data. So we start to know, not until the Great Depression does the United States government know how large the American economy is. They literally enter the Great Depression not knowing how big the economy is or how much it's contracted. And Congress literally hires an economist in the early 1930s to, to answer that question, how big is the economy? It takes him a couple of years to create what we now call GDP, gross domestic product. And he comes back and says, you know, this is how big the economy is. And, and it used to be a lot bigger. But that's new in the world. And, and so is the measurement of how much money people have, how much they're spending and, and the ability to track these things. These are all being constructed in this period. Economists are, you know, very usefully assembling data about the economy, creating statistics that the state can use to, to manage policy. And, and so the great success of economics is in beginning to, to make these questions answerable. But economics is also crucially limited by, by the limits of computing and of data in that period. And, and this is a, a long windup to say that during the second half of the 20th century, mainstream economics is dominated by a, a simplistic approach to thinking about the economy in which these problems are modeled with a single agent. So when economists are thinking about what is the effect of a tax cut, they compress all of the people in the economy into a single individual. And they ask, what would that individual do in response to a tax cut? What would that individual do in response to you know, a wage increase or whatever, whatever the changes in economic circumstances? And And the reason for this is not that they think all people behave the same, but that computers have limited power. And and if you're going to calculate these things, you need to do it in a way that, that can be accommodated by the mainframe. And the consequence is that economics is blind to the type of difference that you described. The, the, they simply don't have the computational power to consider the difference that a tax cut has for a millionaire versus a person living in poverty. They treat the tax cut as if it hits just one represent what's called a representative agent who's sort of average for that society. And so while it's true that the millionaire is more likely to save the money and the poor person is more likely to spend it, the model gives you the answer of what a person at the median income will do with the money, which is, you know, save some of it, spend some of it, and you lose those distributional differences. And so economic was blind essentially to the to the to the issue that you're describing. That's answer number one. Answer number two is that this blindness was to some extent willful. It was convenient. 
economics was telling a story, as we have already talked about, that was beneficial to the wealthy. And it extended beyond the use of representative agents. Economists also devised elaborate explanations of why it didn't really matter whether the money ended up initially in the hands of the wealthy person or the poor person, because the wealthy person would uh, lend what they didn't use, and the poor person could borrow it and spend it, and and the money would end up circulating irrespective of where it began its journey. And this turns out not to be true. We now have a much finer-grained understanding of the economy. We can see in the data that this isn't true. We can see in the data that there is, particularly coming out of the Great Recession a decade ago, uh, there was some enormously influential work done really demonstrating the impact on the economy of exactly the differences you're describing. And, and I think there is growing recognition now that, that that's really important. But for a long time, economists were employed to an embarrassing extent in uh, devising clever ways to justify the accumulation of wealth in the hands of the few. That's a damning indictment of economists. Yeah, I, I think it's... But I think it's... So do you think it's the core, the fun, the, the actual... The, the role of an economist is fundamentally flawed because they measure everything in money. They're monetizing everything. And so a lot of growth is just externalization of income and expenditure outside the, the family unit or, or the consumption of... I also heard you on Chris Peak Prosperity podcast with Chris Martinson when I was doing my research and he was going on about the... You know, this... this currently, we're living in an oil economy, you know, from ancient trees and so this whole the whole everything's flawed at the moment so yeah i mean without getting overly philosophical i don't think economics is unique in having flaws everything has flaws the question is are you aware of those flaws do you acknowledge those flaws do you do, are you mindful of your own limitations and i think that the problem with economics is not that it's flawed but that it ignored those flaws and and behaved as if it it was not uh, a limited way of looking at the world. I think it has real value, but it also has real limits. And you know, it's it, some of the areas you mentioned are, are great examples of that. I mean, e economics in assessing regulations has really relied. One of the stories I tell in my book, which I love, is about something called the Rand Institute, which was created after World War II to basically keep bright people focused on problems of national defense. They could no longer force them to serve in the military. So they created a fancy building for them on a beach in California where they could sit and think great thoughts and, and get paid to do it. And, and so that, <laughs> that worked great. And one of the first problems put to these fine minds was what was the most efficient way to blow up the Soviet Union? How could okay. you do that <laughs> as quickly and cheaply as possible? So, you know, these people, they sit around and they think about that. And the, the solution they arrive at is that you should send a lot of bombers carrying a lot of nuclear bombs into the teeth of the Soviet defenses. A lot of the planes would get shot down, but enough of them would make it through that you could destroy the Soviet Union. This is the type of thing that, that people thought about during the Cold War. And, and this is obviously terrible on many levels, but, but one aspect of it that seemed particularly terrible when Rand presented this solution to the, to the leaders of the Air Force was that Rand hadn't given any thought to the pilot. The leaders of the Air Force are, of course, pilots, and they were particularly upset about this. Mm. Uh, and they said, you know, what about the pilots? You didn't calculate the value of all these lost pilots. And the Rand folks responded quite sensibly, like, 
we don't know how to put value on the life of a pilot. It's incommensurable. We can value a bomb, we can value a plane, but what is the life of a pilot worth? And almost immediately, this internal debate broke out at Rand between the people who said, listen, that's as far as we can go. Like, we can tell them how many people are going to get killed, but they need to figure out, they meaning the policymakers, need to figure out what's acceptable. And, and then a rival and ultimately successful school, which said basically like, no, we're going to figure out how to measure the value of human life. We're going to put a number on it to help policymakers make these decisions. And it takes a couple of decades, but ultimately economists succeed. I suppose I should put succeed in quotes uh, in assigning a dollar value to human life. And that methodology is enormously influential because it creates the illusion of rational decision-making. It allows policymakers to present cost-benefit analyses that say basically like, if we prevent this kind of pollution, it'll save this many, it'll cost this to install the new filters on the smokestacks, but it'll save this many lives. And it either is or is not worth it based on this methodology. So that's a great example of economics sort of, you know, insisting that what's relevant is what can be measured and then pretending to be able to measure something that, you know, in many respects, I think we can all agree resists measurement uh, and then making mm. decisions on that basis. And of course, the decision has to be made. A society needs to decide whether or not to install the filters. And the economics methodology is extremely helpful in doing that. It forces you to, you don't, if I told you, for example, that uh, a given policy would cost $100 million for each life that it saved, we'd probably want to think about whether that policy was worth it. It might be, but we'd mm. want to think about it. If I told you that it would cost 10 cents for each life that it saved, we'd probably want to do that tomorrow. And so that, you know, that trade-off, it's helpful to make that trade-off. It's enormously mm. helpful to be able to think about choices in those terms. But you don't want to confuse the methodology for reality. You don't want to treat mm. it as if, you know, anything that's cost-benefit positive is worth doing and anything that's cost-benefit negative is not worth doing. Because, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, it's just one lens on the problem. Okay, so... Maybe going back to the Keynesianism, monetarism, I could do a rap on it, but uh, Russ Roberts already done that. Yeah, so. a good one. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> so what about the creation of money? Because one of the arguments that, that Keynesianism say is that the central banks essentially create money and also, also the credit card economy, it creates money. How do you feel about that, you know, the money supply argument? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's money is a really fun thing to talk about because it's surprisingly it feels very simple but it turns out to be surprisingly slippery and complicated what we mean by money what role money plays in our society it's a deep and fascinating well and and you know i i, I think there's no doubt that money can be created by the financial system that that's an important role that the financial system and and that our understanding of that is an example of the ways in which I think economics has enhanced our understanding of the world, has, has enabled us to, you know, get a better sense of what we're actually talking about, you know, to move past a world in which, you know, we think of the value of money as based intrinsically on gold or on anything else. Uh, isn't is, it quite is a genuine advance? We left the gold. You know, isn't it quite an etheric subject now? Has it become more of, economists became more of a philosophy after they left the gold standard? 
Well, I, I mean, I, I think I would argue that even before we left the gold standard, the, the gold standard was something of an illusion, right? Like money was the value of money already rested on social consensus even before uh, the end of the gold standard. The gold standard was was a social consensus about how to value money, but not an actual basis for that value. But I mean, it's a it's a fascinating subject. Takes us a little bit away from the themes of the book, but but it's certainly something I think is fun to talk. So, how did you come to to write the book? I mean, what because you're you have this you obviously have this 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 viewpoint. I was reading you 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 won awards for discovering the housing crisis, the housing fraud. Was it basically lending? Yeah. Crisis. So you know, I I I started writing about finance and economics in the early 2000s and and really the story that that brought me into this subject area was was the housing bubble in the United States and all of the fraud and and craziness associated with it you know as i started writing about economic policy i i studied history i i find that lens to be really helpful in understanding the world and you know, I, I started reading about the history of economic policy. I, I was interested in understanding how the rules that we lived under had had been shaped and and had come into place. And what was for me really surprising was to discover how recently these rules had been imposed, and to discover that there had been very different rules before that. And so, I read this this great book called Profits of Regulation by a Harvard historian named Thomas McCraw, in which he narrates the evolution of regulatory philosophy in the United States. And, you know, his book is really about the way that economists replaced lawyers in that space. And a legalistic approach to regulation was replaced by an economic approach to regulation. Uh, A legalistic approach emphasizes sort of norms and, and, and rules. And an economic approach estimates, excuse me, emphasizes outcomes and, and, uh, that's a big difference, and it transformed the regulation of transportation in the United States. So, until the 1970s, airline prices were tightly regulated; flying was fairly rare. And then the government gets rid of that and basically says to the airlines, "You know, do what you want." Flying gets a lot cheaper; it gets a lot less pleasant, but it becomes, you know, a mass market product. Anybody can afford to do it. There's a lot of good and bad mixed up in that, but that's all unleashed by this transition. And that was fascinating to me. I, I just didn't know that the world had changed in that way. And, and I didn't feel like it got a lot of attention in sort of the popular narrative about what the 20th century was and, and what was going on and, and how that unfolded. And so I just became fascinated by this transition, by this idea that this new approach to the world had, that there had been a revolution, basically, a quiet revolution that had been enormously important and enormously influential and that people didn't really understand or talk about. And to the extent that they were aware of it, they took the products of the revolution for granted. They didn't understand that it had been something new in the world. And as I thought more about it, I, I came to feel that the consequences of the revolution had been less than wholly positive and, and that it was a story that uh, I wanted to tell. Okay. Yeah, it's funny how, you know, that we don't appreciate history. We don't, this gradual, but it's in, in a generation now. I mean, you also talk about the examples of the antitrust regulation, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but now is is not the most effective. Yeah, no doubt. Antitrust regulation was an American innovation. In the late 19th century, 
as big companies began to, to rise on the scale that we know them today, Standard Oil, the great oil company, or the U.S. Steel Trust, or the great railroads, they were playing a role in the American economy that was unprecedented. Their scale, their political power, their power as employees. America had been a land of you know smallholders and small businesses, farmers and small businesses, and all of a sudden you had these giant monopolies, you know, dominating the economy. And the response of the government was to try to constrain the power of corporations to to argue that that companies could be too big for the public good, that large companies might uh, suppress competition in ways that were bad for smaller companies, that they might overcharge consumers in ways that were bad for, for the general public, and that they threatened democracy, that they might simply exert too much political power, and that for all of these reasons, we needed laws that allowed the government to constrain or even to break up big companies. And that idea held sway for half a century. It became increasingly difficult in practice to, to draw these lines. And economists came along in the 1960s. We can rationalize this system. We're going to you know, all these nice ideas about democracy and about the, the importance of small business, these things are not measurable. What, what can be measured is prices. So we're going to rationalize antitrust enforcement by focusing on prices. And, and the new rule, in essence, is going to be that corporate conduct that makes prices go up is bad. So if you buy your competitor and you raise prices, that's But corporate conduct that doesn't affect prices is fine. And, and what happens over the succeeding decades is a radical consolidation of American industry. You know, four airlines, three cell phone companies, two companies that make coffins, one that makes eyeglasses. And, and what you get is basically, you know, the impact on pricing is genuinely modest if it, and in many cases negative. Like consumers are paying less for stuff. But it turns out that companies can squeeze other people too. So suppliers are getting squeezed. Workers are, are getting hugely squeezed. So Americans are benefiting as consumers and losing as workers. And, and political power is a real problem. These companies are, are rewriting the laws of the land in their own interest uh, and shaping the outcomes of the political process in just the ways that, that the original writers of the antitrust laws anticipated. And so this is an area in which economics, you know, really reformulated the law, did it without a vote of any kind, did it largely through the court system and the acquiescence of, of successive presidential administrations. And so you now have an antitrust standard that says anything goes as long as prices don't. And the effect is that you have a company like Amazon, which is genuinely committed to, to delivering low prices to consumers, but does so by you know paying its employees a pittance squeezing its providers and making it difficult for them to grow, and which exercises this enormous political power. And those are legitimate public policy concerns too, but they fall outside the ambit of traditional economics. And so, you know, a law that was designed to confront those things has been hobbled and, and focused on just one issue. And that's a great example of the way that economists transformed public policy in, in ways that you know, had consequences that, that we now need to deal with. Well, but on the other hand, it might be easier to get into space in future, thanks to people like who we mentioned. <laughs> yeah, if you got the money, you can take the ride, <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, wow. What's that old uh, Gil, Gil Heron, uh, you know, uh, Whitey's on the moon or whatever it is, and I'm still... I'm still poor and living down my, I'm, I'm not even going to paraphrase it. I'll do a terrible job, but that idea certainly seems awfully relevant right now. Right. That I sounds mean, like a, who? there's an old line about the, the Ritz hotel open to all, right. All you need to be able to do is afford the Ritz hotel and then you're welcome to stay there. It's sort of yeah. the same idea. Was it a song? Yeah, it's a, there's a, I think his name is Gil Scott Heron. I can look it up, but he's a brilliant, yeah, Gil Scott Heron. He was a brilliant sort of spoken word poet who wrote this brilliant, you can find it online, it's called Whitey on the Moon, about the the contrast between the successes of the space program and the crisis of, of American inner cities in the 1960s. That's good to never go out of date these ideas because it seems like we're coming back to the, yeah. to the, to the evils of the corporations. They, they saw them on the horizon, though they were quite uh, precedent. I mean... And now it seems that if you if you raise that voice, then you're a, you're a fringe movement. You're a what's the word like occupy? You're a you know you're a dangerous outlier. What's the, what's the word of these groups? But is there anyone inside who's apart from yourself who's who's ringing the bell? No, I, absolutely. I, I don't think of myself as exceptional. I mean, I, I think you know I'm I'm uh, I'm a journalist, and you know a lot my work is basically about channeling the ideas and concerns that are being expressed by others i don't know how much is is necessarily original about my work if i have a value add hopefully it's in making this stuff accessible so yeah i, I think you know that economics has has entered a period of of turbulence in the 1930s and again in the 1970s our understanding of how the world worked how the economics of the world worked really broke down and, and part of what allowed the revolution I'm describing to happen is that people lost confidence in the old way of understanding the world. And I think that that has happened again. I think, mm. you know, the, the financial crisis that began in 2007 and 2008 really rocked confidence in mainstream economics in its verities. Economists had been so outrageously overconfident in insisting that, you know, we lived in what they called, a, excuse me, a great moderation, a period in which financial crises were essentially inconceivable. And that, you know, everything was under control and, and you know, growth would continue. And, and that just all turned out to be not just wrong. The reasons that they said it was right turned out to be the reasons that it was actually wrong. They were just upside down and backwards about the way that things worked. The, the stability of the economy was, in fact, the cause of the crisis. And that, that shook confidence as it should have in their in their entire prescription in their entire you know we called it a kind of medicine so it took confidence in that kind of medicine and i think we're now in this world where no one is quite sure how to move forward and so there are lots of people uh, articulating these kinds of critiques and struggling with the question of of what ought to come next there are also lots of people still defending the old ways and hoping to resurrect it and and to reestablish its primacy so i think that this is an urgent conversation that that people can and should join and and that we need to develop better approaches to making public policy decisions. I mean, one thing about economics that I really respect and think is enormously important is that it it forced people to make these choices explicitly, right? Mm -hmm. It's not you can't stand there and say, you know, life is infinitely precious 
Because the fact of the matter is that at the end of the day, we do decide how much money we're going to spend on traffic safety measures or on pollution controls or on, you know, whatever it is, greenhouse gas controls. Those are decisions that we are going to make. And Mm -hmm. when we make them, we will be expressing a view about the value of human life, however nicely we want to couch that point. And economics has helped by making that choice explicit, but it's still a choice that we need to make as a body public, as a polity. And and so I think I give a lot of credit to economics for putting the question to us as a society. I think we as a society need to arrive at better ends. Okay, so we come to the interesting part, because you're a historian, you study the past for a reason, because history repeats. And you're also, you know, a journalist in the center of things what's coming next? Yeah, I mean, I I like the saying that history rhymes more than repeats. But yeah, I mean, I don't know, is the straightforward answer to that. I, I think that we can learn a lot about how to, I think the value of studying history and of talking about this stuff is that we can learn how to move forward more sensibly, right? We can Mm. develop better approaches for making decisions. And we can confront our problems in ways that are more likely to produce good results, but the problems don't stay the same. And, and, you know, the best you can do is be honest about what, what the challenges are and, and how we're confronting them and, and hope that we do a better job going forward. So, you know, the way that I often answer this kind of question is by saying, you know, listen, it is clear to me that we need to explicitly confront distributional questions in all of our public policy decisions, by which I mean that, you know, the inequalities of modern life are, you know, perhaps the most important public policy issue in a, in a you know, societal sense that we need to deal with. The dangers to our climate, to the long-term, you know, habitability of the planet are, are an issue that needs to be front and center. Like, you know, the idea that figuring out how to make the economy grow a little faster every year is the most important job of government is ludicrous. The most important job of government is to ensure the measure of a society is not its overall prosperity and it's not the quality of life at the top, it's the quality of life at the bottom. And that is where the focus needs to be on ensuring that everybody is benefiting from the prosperity of our society and that we are conducting business, as it were, in a way that's sustainable. Uh, in a way that allows our society to continue to exist and to thrive. And these are different lenses. And my hope is that if we apply them and use the tools available to us to make decisions, that we will do a better job of of moving in those directions than we've done over the last half century. And when you looked back, did you find any of the rhymes that didn't result, any of the changes that didn't result from major crises? Say, ask that differently. I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, is the only way changed because the inherent fragility, the rigidity in the economy is getting worse now. I mean, that nobody's learning, the, you know, they're, they're, repeat, they're still repeating. Is, is it inevitably Does it take a crisis? A, does it take a crisis? Yeah. I th- I, there, there are clearly instances. I, I don't think it takes a crisis is the short answer. Okay. I think that right, it is that's, possible. That's, that's positive. Just stop, right? That's not going to get any better than that. I think that there are clearly, it is clearly possible for societies to anticipate crises and to avert them. And there are examples of that in history. It is not the case that you need to 
I mean, perhaps the most vivid and visible examples end up being the situations in which the crisis happens, and then you can sort of mark the response. Tracing crises that are averted in the historical record is a much more difficult thing, right? Because you're looking for the things that didn't happen. But I, I think that that real and, in fact, fairly common historical phenomenon, crises that don't happen, and that don't happen uh. because societies intervene consciously and successfully. You know, the history of England actually affords an example in the 1830s and 1840s. England responds to, you know, the type of nascent unrest that eventually leads either to authoritarianism or to the overthrow of imperial regimes in the rest of Europe by broadening the franchise significantly, allowing a much larger share of the population to vote, restructuring parliament, and introducing other reforms that are intended to make England a more democratic society. And, and that is successful in averting, that, that ensures the stability of the United Kingdom during a period that, you know, most of its neighbors in Europe are, are either being destabilized or are moving in an authoritarian direction to avoid instability. You know, I think the United States in the progressive era of, of the 19-teens and the, the aughts and teens, you know, is successful in constraining the rising power of corporations, at least for a time, and in increasing the power of workers in important ways. And, you know, similarly avoids the type of turmoil that overtakes pure nations during that same period. So, you know, I think that it it can and does happen. It requires political consensus, obviously. It requires a society that has a clear sense of what the problem is and what needs to be done about it. And those things are not easy. But I do think that that although it doesn't get as much attention as the crises, it does happen. Uh, and there are precedents for optimists to, to stand on. Okay, well, that's good to know. But we didn't have corporations back then. So but do you think that also the way that we all through we can vote uh, to change the politics, but we can also vote with our, our dollars, our euros, you know, and we, we choose, we place higher value in I know people around me, they, they buy things from corporations because they think they have a, it's a higher value product or also they try to get jobs with corporations because they have more. So do you think our values and our behavior as individuals, if that radically changed, or would it have to be forced by a, maybe a lack of faith in the, the corporations? If we, cause I had Judy Wicks on the show who, who wrote a good morning, beautiful business. And she's a big advert advocate for by local. And that seems to be a, a way to solve, to bypass corporations just by living a, a local life. I, I think that, you know, the basic premise, I think that this is not being done to us. We are doing it to ourselves is sort of a very important place to begin. We, you know, have the power to change the rules of the game and to live in a different way as a society. I'm not saying that's easy. When I when I say this to people, I often, you know, but, you know, the rich people have more power and, and corporations have more power. Yes, I'm not representing to anyone that this is the that this is an easy way to change the world. I, I just think it's the only way to change the world hmm. is is through collective action, through a decision, collective decision that we want to live under different rules. 
and that we want to, you know, limit the role that corporations play in society, limit the wealth that individuals can accumulate and the power that they can exercise. These are choices that we as a society can make, have made differently in the past uh, and can make differently mm. again in the future. I guess it's easy for us to say here in podcast land as to white males educated who've benefited from education. So we, we can change our behavior, but maybe education has to come as well in there. Yeah. And it's really hard specifically. I mean, it's easy for me to talk about sacrifice, right? Because I can give up a lot and still have a lot. Mm. Um, I have a lot. The fact that I have a lot to lose, you know, is sometimes portrayed as, you know, a reason for fear, but it's also a reason for bravery. It, it enables me to to talk a big game about, you know, my willingness to pay a little bit more for food or to, you know, consume a little bit less of things that I like or whatever the case may be. It's obviously much harder. This is true both in, say, the United States. It's much harder for lower income populations in the United States to participate in these types of shifts in behavior because uh, for them, the ability to eat, you know, at lowest possible cost is really, really important to their standard of living. And asking mm -hmm. people to say, for example, forego McDonald's is a, is a consequential sacrifice. I mean, for me, it's nothing. It's very easy for me to commit to eating. And again, we're talking about small strokes here. But if I wanted to commit to only eating, you know, ethically raised meat, that's an easy thing for me to do. I have the money to do that. Mm -hmm. To ask someone who's living near poverty, it tastes better, right? For someone who's living near poverty, that that may be a really hard thing to ask them to do. So I'm cognizant of that. I'm also cognizant, you know, in a global sense that, you know, there's this real problem where where we're asking we need other countries to do things that we were not willing to do at a comparable stage in our development. Right? We need India, for example, to limit energy consumption or to to reorganize its energy consumption, not to do what the U.S. did. Right? Not to not to burn massive amounts of coal <laughs> in order yeah. to develop an industrialized economy. We need them Don't not do to do that. But that's unfair, right? Yeah. But like, mm -hmm. how do you do that? We need to accept that that the way you get India not to do that is by giving them some of what we have, basically, by, by sharing with them the fruits of what is now a forbidden path to development or what ought to be a forbidden path to development. So these types of questions, it's not just, I think that often people... Think about the changes that need to be made in terms of, you know, just what about sacrifice, but not redistribution, if you will. I think they think about it in terms of like what they need to change about their own lives, but not what they need to help other people do. And and the world won't change sufficiently if the well-to-do start eating, you know, ethically raised beef. It only changes sufficiently if we make it possible for everyone to you know, to eat a sustainable diet. Yeah, it comes back to the to, to built, raising all the boats now. And I mean, it's, it's these people at the t these people at the top talking about you know ethical investing and people like Bill Gates and their philanthropy. I mean, it drives me crazy because he's Bill Gates, for example, at the moment I think he's the third richest man in the world or something. And he's talking about how much he's giving away in philanthropy, and he's still the third. So what a failure giving away your money if you're still in the in the top three. I mean, it's just abject failure. No, you should plummeting through the rankings. It's just, it's like a friend of mine said it was like a group of white men talking about uh, gender equality and how they're going to fix it. You know, 
it's yeah i mean you know the the great book on this you know the winners take all that came out a couple of years ago about the sham of philanthropy i think is uh, a book everyone should read oh you're I mean, a really, good reading list yeah and he would be a great person to do a song with actually a non i'm blanking on his last name but because i mean i think you know he just makes a case that has stuck with me that you know philanthropy is just a poor substitute for, for taxation mm. and and that we ought not to be leaving it in the hands of people who've accumulated their fortunes you know by standing on the shoulders of society to decide who they'll help and how they'll help them that's just a terrible terrible system and and i i just agree mm. profoundly Oh, well, this has been great. I mean, uh, super inspiring. Is there anything else you think, because it's a big book, is there anything else we didn't? Oh, I'm sure there is, but we've covered a lot of ground. And and I mean, I just hope, you know, I, I write in the final page of the book that, you know, for me, the takeaway is that the rules that we live under were made by people. We have the power to write different rules. We just need to decide to do it. Fatalism is misplaced, basically. I mean, economic policy is a human construct. Marketplaces do not exist in a state of nature. They are created by societies. They accomplish the purposes that societies set for them. Uh, if we want different outcomes from our markets, we just need to write different rules. Positive song, then. All right. Thanks, Benjamin. I look forward to hearing it. Uh, so do I. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care. Have a great day. All right. Bye.
Well, thanks, Benjamin. If you'd like to read his book, you can go to Amazon or the usual places. Buy the book. If you want to hear the song again, you can go to Spotify, iTunes, Deezer, all the usual places. Thank you to my musicians, Maurizio Sanicola, Massimino Vozza, and Luigi Falcioni, and my researcher, Dori Verbo, and also an honorary mention to the Ethereum Society, the teachings of which have led me to start this project serving the servers, helping those who help others. You can learn more about this society at ethereus.org or listen to my other podcast, The Mystic Cast, which is also available at podsongs.com. Thanks for the reviews. Thanks for all the support. I really appreciate it. Have a great day.